0: This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation.
1: It's my distinct pleasure to introduce, and a real honor to introduce tonight's speakers. Uh, If ever there was a time when uh, the phrase, needs no introduction, was true, this is it. Uh, but I will do my best to make this very brief. Um, uh, Needless to say, uh, the the panelists tonight are among the uh, most uh, dignified, important, uh, significant artists um, in the history of Bay Area and American art and their work is widely uh, respected, collected, and exhibited uh, regionally, nationally, and internationally. So to my immediate right is William T. Wiley. Uh, Wiley has worked in a variety of media including painting, drawing, uh, printmaking, sculpture, and performance art. Uh, Much of his work combines images and objects with written text. He received his BFA in 1961 and MFA in 1962, both from the San Francisco Art Institute. And Wiley taught at Davis from 1962 to 1973. Uh, Next to Wiley is Manuel Neri. Uh, Manuel is a sculptor known for his figurative work in plaster, um, bronze and marble, although he also uh, uh, makes paintings and works on paper. Uh, during the 1950s, uh, he studied at UC Berkeley, CCAC, and the California School of Fine Arts, which is now the San Francisco Art Institute. Uh, Manuel taught at Davis from 1964 to 1990. And to his right is Wayne Thiebaud, uh who is a painter who has rec- received recognition for his paintings, drawings, and prints of food and other commonplace objects, as well as figures and cityscapes. Uh, he received a B.A. in 1941 and an M.A. in 1952 from Sacramento State College, which is now Sacramento State University. Wayne began teaching <coughs> excuse me, at Davis in 1962 and continues to teach here on an emeritus basis. Um, as we all know, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, tonight's program has been organized in conjunction with the exhibition UC at the Richard L. Nelson Gallery here on campus. Uh, in addition to these artists uh, on stage, uh, the exhibition includes work uh, the work of Robert Arneson and Roy DeForest, who, um, both of whom sadly are no longer with us. Uh, collectively, these five artists are considered the founding studio faculty of the UC Davis Art Department. Um, and I want to begin by quoting something from the exhibition catalog, which I've been told to remind you is on sale in the lobby outside. Um, get your copy afterwards. Um, a quote from Rennie Pritikin, who's the director of the art gallery, uh, the Nelson Gallery. And he writes, "Um, how did it happen that a relatively obscure rural California university, best known for its veterinary, medical, and agriculture programs, was able to pull together a major roster of artists and teachers? Uh, It's a good question and definitely a pretty um, interesting story, considering that all five of the studio faculty went on to have... um, immensely successful careers as artists, while at the same time earning the respect and admiration of generations of students who consider them equally great as teachers. So I want to kind of begin at the beginning, if you all indulge me, and uh, ask you um, to share some of your impressions of Davis, uh, your colleagues, uh, the students, um, the campus in general when you first came here to teach. Also you might want to say something Uh, about Richard Nelson, who I understand was uh, the person who was responsible for bringing you all together. So, uh, who wants to go first? (laughs) Me? Good choice. Um,
2: Well, I think, certainly, Richard Nelson deserves an awful lot of credit. And... I can remember when they asked him how he went about his hiring, he was very determined to have as many different kinds of people in the department that he felt would be the best thing to do rather than having some sort of program or preconceived idea of what an art department would be. So my first experience with him came when I was teaching at the city college, it's called Sacramento Junior College then, and he came over and uh, he had a very quizzical way of talking, hard to understand sometimes. He loved to use words, which when he got up in a regular academic senate, everybody sort of nodded their heads and wondered what he was talking about. <clears throat> but he said that uh, he was, he'd was he started an art department and uh, asked me if uh, I'd be interested in coming and I wasn't very interested in that because <clears throat> I was very happy I could walk to the junior college and he said something very, again, that I'll always remember. He looked out the window and he said, you see the pine tree out there? And I looked out and I said, yes. He says, how big around do you think that trunk of that tree is? I said, I don't know It's about that big around. He says, I can get you a roll of canvas that big if you come from do research at the university. (laughs) But he was was a very kind man, uh, very bright, and also uh, very democratic. He, my, ex, my exposure to him was that it was always he always wanted to promote everybody the same. Uh, he also did something I think which was rare in the university community as far as I know anything about and that was he tried to keep us off committees He said that if you get a, for instance, I said, well, how do you do that? He said, well, if you get a letter in your mailbox and there are a bunch of names that you are to vote for for this or that, he says, throw it in the wastebasket because you don't want any kind of records of anybody that you have ever signed anything at all if you want to stay off committee. (laughs) But those were some of the impressions, and he deserves, I think, a lot of, Credit for uh, putting the department together, for better or worse, and uh, uh, we owe him a great debt.
3: Um, Mr. Nelson, I'll call him, uh, was—I always thought of him as an extraordinary man because of the department he put together, and being invited here to teach was a real privilege for me because of the group of people he gathered here together. Um, it was an extraordinary thing that happened for me. and I always had this funny feeling in the back of my mind of sort of what brought us all here. I always thought it was Sputnik. <laughs> Uh, Sputnik went up in the late 50s and this country sort of went crazed and uh, started throwing money at the university systems and uh, Dave was very lucky in getting a damn good portion of it and uh, some of that money slopped over and they got themselves a good art department (laughs) (laughs) I agree
4: with what they said (laughs)
1: Okay, (laughs) all right. They warned me about this beforehand, so Um, I want to stay, if you will, in the early 60s for just a few more uh, seconds and um, talk about that period, which was a pretty uh, rich and fertile time in in the Bay Area art scene. Um, And much of it revolved around the various art schools and university art departments. As an example, African Expressionism was pretty influential at the San Francisco Art Institute uh, through teachers like Hassel Smith and Richard Diebenkorn. Later on, Alvin Light were there. Uh, Pete Volkoth was doing the same sort of uh, carrying that same aesthetic on in the ceramic uh, sculpture studios at Berkeley that he was sort of beginning to put together. Um, also at Berkeley, you had um, uh, echoes of the Bay Area Figurative Movement with uh, teachers like uh, David Park and. Uh, Elmer Bischoff and later on Joan Brown and Nate Oliveira, doing the same thing down at Stanford. Um, At the same time this was going on in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, in the East Bay, and down in the peninsula, the department here was just sort of, you know, uh, coming into its own and um, didn't have the same sort of history and and not the same identity, not uh, not yet at least, uh, that the other programs did. So I was wondering and thinking about the kind of birth of the art department here, um, what kind of relationships or connections you all had with these other programs, um, especially uh, considering that Davis is you know physically a, a bit distant from uh, uh, distant from uh, San Francisco and the East Bay. Um, so uh, I sort of wondered about that: how you maintain that connection, and did you ever feel that the Davis's location and this lack of this long history was uh, either uh, a disadvantage or an advantage in getting the program underway?
4: both, uh, advantage and disadvantage. And I think the thing that uh, really made the department good and interesting was that we all came at the same time, pretty much. And uh, so there was no hierarchy, no long history of older guys ahead of you that had to kind of plow through. uh, So I think that made a big difference. And and also what Wayne and Manuel confirmed about Richard Nelson, uh, really... Strong guiding principle and uh, steering you towards the classroom, your own studio, and away from committees.
1: Other comments about uh, the, the connection to the other barrier programs and how that uh, may have uh, changed or fostered things here at Davis? I don't know
4: <clears throat> about connections with programs.
3: I agree with you Bill. I don't think we really had a real connection with the bay area. Um, I think if there were any connections it was I don't know a lot of us were traveling around and giving talks someplace else and it was great having those connections outside of California. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic, you know.
4: Yeah, interesting people came to guest each. Wayne brought some people back from the East Coast. Elaine de Kooning. Yeah. I think... uh,
2: I don't... I would like to say that uh, in this crazy art situation, there is this tendency, I think, to maybe over concern themselves with areas and uh, schools of painting and it's like for for such a long time they used to always refer, they'd love to refer to uh, artists out here as California artists. Uh, and New Yorkers are awfully eager to do that. I don't know exactly why, but <laughs> it's like, uh, I mean, it's, there's only one art, world in painting or sculpture or whatever one is doing and you at least from my standpoint I steal from everything I possibly can look at all over every school and every if I can use it or if it's inspirational it's part of that whole bundle of conventions and art history and non-art history and tribal art and Chinese art all of that it's it's really one I think one thing of course there are nuances and and schools and indigenous influences but I think talking about or referring to say Bill Wiley as a California artist is like calling someone a California mathematics mathematician because it's it's just not Anything which is very interesting, at least to me.
1: Well, I want to talk a bit about your work as teachers. I mean, that's why you came here. And uh, um, I'm sort of interested in the range of teaching styles that probably existed here um, when you all came in in the early 1960s. Uh, the catalog contains some pretty cool stories about this, and I wanted to relate a couple um, as part of this question. Uh, there's a, um, a story that uh, Uh, Wayne related that after telling his graduate students, or actually it was, I think it was uh, uh, Jock Reynolds who mentioned this, uh, after telling his graduate students that he couldn't teach any of them to become artists, uh, Thibault gave a detailed lecture on where to buy the best and cheapest salami, cheese, coffee, cakes, and wine in the area. Um, There's a story about uh, Neri in the catalog um, uh, after um, uh, giving a demonstration to his students, Emmanuel uh, sometimes sat in the back of the classroom drinking a cup of coffee while using that same cup of coffee to make dozens of figure drawings from the model. And uh, for Wiley, uh, unexpectedly performing blues and folk songs uh, for his graduate students while playing guitar and uh, harmonica. Uh, there's also a description of DeForest, uh, his whimsy and humor, while at the same time being profound and serious and a comment about Arneson being the required in-your-face challenger of the Davis Art Faculty um, from uh, Jock uh, Reynolds' essay. And that last comment about Arneson got me thinking about this various um, differences and approaches to uh, teaching here, and I wondered uh, if you all uh, change your philosophy about teaching once you came to Davis. Did your colleagues um, affect that, the students? And I'm particularly interested in your approaches to critiques because I know a lot of uh, art students approach them uh, with a certain amount of uh, fear and loathing. So I wondered how uh, you all uh, sort of approach your, um, your teaching here.
2: I think fundamentally the thing to say is I think we're really very genuinely interested in teaching. You try to teach out of your own enthusiasms and each of us had their own particular kind of enthusiasms and loves and uh, convictions on how they thought they would be able to help people um, i th- I would just say my in my own case i I have no idea how to teach, and uh, i don 't mean that in any <coughs> any any jocular way it's just that I think everybody the only thing that I have now a feeling about is that everybody is essentially self-taught I mean they can see examples and uh, they were able in this instance to see a lot of different kinds of examples uh, and then finally it has to make sense to them and they have to convince themselves I have to work from my own self and find things that mean something to me and try to get something out there which is not it doesn't insult the tradition of something like painting or sculpture it it makes some you don't want to ignoble that tradition uh... so you you feel compelled to do your best and uh, the critical ideas that you talked about going around to the students, graduate students. uh, On a review day, we would all try uh, to give various points of view and reactions to the work. Uh, In in many instances, we seriously disagreed. Um, But I think that was uh, important to do. So that the student, again, had to throw himself or herself on the mercy of themselves and try to figure it out. We avoided, I think, something which uh, always has the danger of coalescing into a formula or an expected uh, regime or... um, I mean, there's so much of that already in the art world where students will come up and say, you know, what should I be painting? or How should I be sculpting? They get the idea, I guess, when they see magazines and the way in which the world now is functioning, that there must be something that uh, has to do with art. So maybe I can find a way to do the signs of art, you know? Was the rub, the drip, the uh the strange torn paper, the ambiguous and not identical signature. You know? Alberto Hagicon. Sign, you, know? you try to find, and I did the same thing. I was trying to figure how can I make my work look like art? <laughs> and uh, I I could never <laughs> do that. I <It> was not <laughs> uh, and I think Chuck close said something very wise. He said, if you're trying to make your work and you make it look like art, it's probably somebody else's. So that, you know, the idea of the individual is still the most important thing.
1: Wiley, Manuel?
4: (laughs) Well, I had one breakthrough because uh, I always hated taking a role and uh, just drove me crazy. And um, so I finally, one day, um, first of class, I had everybody go get an eight and a half by 11 uh, pad, a typewriter paper, you know, just this white paper, and a black ballpoint pen. And I said, if you want to be counted here um, when you're in class, you have to do a self-portrait on this paper with a ballpoint pen and sign it and date it. And so um, I gradually started to learn names and uh, accumulate this stack of papers. <laughs> and I, could, I finally started pinning them up in there. And uh, lo and behold, because some people would really get involved in it and other people would just come in and dash it off, but not thinking about it, as I accumulated those papers, a whole record uh, started to... Uh, Uh, accumulate there and I could see things happening in this uh, self portrait signature piece that was really interesting and I could uh, refer back to things going on in class Then at the end of the class I could hand them back this whole stack of uh, self portraits that uh, had some interesting aspects to it uh, so that was one specific thing I highly recommend it if you're having that problem (laughs)
3: Um, I I don't know like I try to make usually a a few points come across in my classes for one thing I don't believe in good art and bad art certainly not when you're you know you're looking for yourself there in that classroom and I encourage people to uh, just do it and I tried to make a selection of these works and just hang on to them and then hand them back and talk to them later about the work and look at little inklings of some of the stuff which they thought was god-awful, terrible, and there were like little things there they could draw from, take from, and build upon. And that's what they should look for in, this, in the classroom. Uh, Things of that sort, or what I, ideas like that are sort of what I wanted my class to get direction to give direction to my class.
1: Well, speaking of uh, students, uh, I think part of the Davis legacy certainly is uh, the number of graduates that have come out of the school since the 1960s, and the quality of the graduates has been pretty remarkable. Um, Just a brief list of alumni, and I'm sure I'm missing a lot of uh, important people, include John Buck and Deborah Butterfield, uh, Christopher Brown, Howard Freed, David Gilhooley, Bruce Nauman, Jock Reynolds, John Roloff, Richard Shaw. I'm sure the list goes on. It's pretty impressive. I think it's a uh, a testament in part to the teaching of the faculty. But I was wondering if you had a sense about your students that were coming to Davis, uh, sort of recognize some of that um, remarkable talent that was coming through there. Also did you sense while you were here um, the, the, the kind of quality of the students changing as the department got better known, as the program was better known. Was there any kind of appreciable difference?
2: I find classes amazingly uh, pretty much the same. I had a student come up to me, and uh, this was early on when I was first teaching. And they tell you about uh, grading on the curve, you know. You have to have A's, B's, mostly C's, and then D's and F's, so... I was trying to follow the rule and I gave this poor fellow an F. I guess mainly because he hadn't shown up. (laughs) So he came up to me and he said, "Uh, Mr. Thibault, I don't understand this grade you gave me. And I said, well, it's an F. (laughs) And he says, I know, but what does that mean? I says, it means you're flunking the class. He says, flunking? How can anybody flunk art? So, <laughs> so since that time, I've hated grading, <coughs> And uh, I'm not a good grader. I've, uh, I'll tell you one more story. Elaine de Kooning, that Bill mentioned, coming out here. She did a very interesting session, but she went to the University of New Mexico and taught, and she was very endearing. She was very helpful to young artists and a very bright woman, very, very uh, good painter herself, and she, kids loved her, loved her, so they'd sign up for her class. She was doing a visiting thing, and uh, she graded, and then she was called into the office and the head of the department says miss mr cooning you well, I want to talk about your grading. you've given uh, you know all your students a's she says, "Yes, I did well, I mean that's you didn't grade on the curve she was explained what Explain what that was, and she said, Well, I'm standing by my grades. He, All these students did what I asked them, they did it well. they they worked hard, and they deserved the grade. So the department had called in uh, someone who taught the same class and showed his grades to her. said they are a sprinkling of A's and then some B's, and C's she says, you see, how, how would you rationalize and explain that your grades are better than his grades? She says, that's easy. She says, my students were better than his.
4: <laughs>
2: well, I think we've got a lot to learn about in grading. I, that's a, a really strange, somehow, I don't know, destructive idea uh, as far as I'm Able to figure it out. I I don't know what the answer is, though. Manual knows.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Please
1: please tell us. (laughs) God, I wish I
3: could. (laughs) Um, I I, I think um, what was looking around me at that back in those years, I realized that. We had a fantastic gathering of people and faculty and uh it uh <clears throat> you know uh, grades nobody even thought of with it about grades i don't ever i don't ever remember discussing grading with anybody um, it uh, We accepted our you know the faculty around us, the people around us, and trusted I trusted them completely and knew they were doing the right thing for this department and uh, that was it
1: that sort of leads into another question. Um, that was sort of uh, inspired by another story in the catalog that uh, Wayne tells. It uh, describes Wiley storming out of a graduate admissions meeting, muttering the phrase, bunch of creeps. So, um, and as anyone who's ever worked or spent any time around an <coughs> academic department uh, uh, knows, uh, department meetings can be either, you know, incredibly boring or sort of scenes of, um, of high drama. And um, I know earlier today, um, during the sort of remembrance of Roy, there was some reference to the department and department meetings, and Manuel just mentioned how well you got together. But I would imagine there were some people here who would have loved to have been sort of a fly on the wall when you, the, you gathered with um, Arneson and DeForest and Nary and Tebow and Wiley sitting around uh, uh, discussing the department, and I just wondered how. I mean, you've mentioned you all got along well. H- how do those meetings go? Were you all sort of of a like mind, or were there great arguments, or uh, or neither? Or all of the above. Yeah, all of the above. <laughs> you put them out of your sometimes memory. Sometimes
4: we argued, and sometimes we didn't. And uh, what can you say? Yeah.
1: I think the best time <laughs> is, I I
2: remember most of the time when we had a party afterwards. <laughs> Well we you know it 's hard it, it wouldn 't have been very interesting to anybody i don 't think uh, we just tried to figure out uh, what we 're going to do when we 're going to meet to judge things or reviews. We should also mention i think there there were really we had a lot of really wonderful uh, people who worked with us and very much a part of us. Uh, Ralph Johnson, Roland Peterson, Dan Shapiro, Tio Jambruni, Jane Garrison, uh, I mean, I don't want to leave anybody out, but it was a, a large group of really hardworking. Well, I shouldn't say why I say hardworking. It wasn't, we were, I don't know. I, I get we're used to the idea.
4: Hard. We weren't hardworking.
2: Yeah. That's right.
4: <laughs>
2: Thank goodness it wasn't hardly working. <clears throat> we all needed jobs, for one thing, and uh, I think we try to take it somewhat seriously. I think, uh, I don't know how, uh, both, both of you and the other people got invited to a lot of places to be what they call visiting... Whatever, and um, that was shocking to me to see the misalignments of art departments. I'd always thought artists were pretty much you know got together and, and liked each other and, and were interested in, but sometimes you go to these people pull you aside and tell you how terrible someone else was or don't go to his studio or, and as, I don't think we ever had that kind of problem. That was one of the strengths of this place, I guess. We just uh, got along and tried to do what we could, but uh, there was never any serious misalignments. And I think I think the students pick up on that. Uh, you could get really very soured environments in places that, Did not. It isn't that you have to agree with each other, but to somehow have a human relationship with each other. And we were lucky that way. It's just one of those lucky things. But uh, we liked each other. We uh, we hated each other. We thought everybody was a little. Other people were a little crazy. I remember. Wiley, one time, called us all creeps because we didn't accept somebody. and I remember Roy DeForest told me one time I was talking about, well, we shouldn't worry about something like talent. I don't even believe in something like talent. And he said, in the way in which Roy talked, he says, well, don't knock it when you don't have it. LAUGHTER <laughs> But there were exchanges like that which, which helped us, I think. Arnes was always sort of like W.C. Field, uh, a little bit. It saved a lot of faculty meetings. We told some jokes. Uh, Wiley has a joke for you right now.
4: <laughs> well, the one I told Wayne while we were waiting in the gray room out there, um was about a guy who goes out for a hike and he comes to a big river and he can't see a bridge or anything, but he sees a guy on the other side and he yells over, how do I get on the other side? the guy yells back, you're on the other side. (laughs) Rodney King said even when he was a little kid he couldn't get any respect. He said to his mom, I can't get no respect. I'm going to run away from home, she said, on your mark. (laughs) (laughs) These were actually the kind of
2: faculty meetings we had.
1: (laughs) Well, this seems like a a perfect moment to turn it over to you. There are a couple of microphones down here, and uh, we welcome your uh, questions for uh, uh, the panelists.
0: I hear you talk a lot about the graduate students. What kind of reactions did you have or uh, interactions you had with undergraduate students?
2: You know, first of all, there's not a great deal of difference. But I I suppose I prefer really to work with undergraduates because I can have a little more chance to fool them. (laughs) But also because I think that's, you know, everything is kind of a beginning. And since i 'm a a kind of old fashioned type teacher that makes the most sense to me, but
3: well, I'm with you, Wayne. I really love teaching those beginning classes uh, I found the students wide open oh. and uh it was great where you could just throw ideas at them and let them make their own selections.
2: We all worked with the graduates. We were all always went around together with the graduate student. We all had had that as well. And in some cases we had to take on the the sort of graduate advisor situation. So it, it was always pretty much as I remember the same. Uh, you're always... I don't want to act like I know what I'm talking about, because I don't. Uh, it's... Uh, I know we're all just, in a way, beginning. And that's the same with graduate students. They, they're just hanging on by their fingertips, and they want help, and they want... want to be thought of, taken seriously. But the same is true with beginning students. It's, uh... Now maybe it'd be interesting to talk about the different ways that we teach. And I, could, I can confess my ignorance in the way in which I teach. I'm, I'm a, I, I, I didn't go to art school, so I came up as a, as a sign painter, and that's about all I am. In some ways now, cartoonists and so on, all those things mean a lot to me. so I try to get the students to draw as well as we can from some sort of basic uh, western tradition of uh, of a convention, and I'd give them a an egg or a white cup, and put it on a white piece of paper and give them a 2H or 3H pencil and tell them to make that look like uh, it's glowing in the light. And next door, Bill Wiley would come in and write ice on the board and leave.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and who's to say which of those is a better way of doing it? There's no such thing. It's just they're just desperate measures to get people working.
3: With the, I was an undergraduate in the mid-70s and enjoyed your painting and theory class. But as far um, as undergraduates, you, undergraduates couldn't take a painting class from you except the ones that were non-majors. And I'd like to know your uh, experience teaching non-majors, like they'd be in pre-med or pre-law, having to take an art class from you, coming in cold, and your, uh, your experiences there.
2: Well, I mean, everybody can draw. And uh, it's just we don't do it. You know? school. Our educational system thinks that that's not something that's very important, but I think it's one of the great ways of knowing things and learning how to see and feel. And somehow or other we've uh, exercised it from the uh, educational system. The problem with the university is that we're on the funnel end of nothing as far as education of drawing and painting and that kind of thing, even art history. Kids come in and they know the difference between religious and secular existentialism, they know the difference between the classics and you give them a pencil and they draw like a six-year-old child. Uh, So when they come in to the university, they come in and they can take a drawing class even though they have no idea about any aspects of it. It'd be like coming into the English department and they don't know what difference between a noun and a verb. But we inherit that problem so that all the classes we have, you have practically the most unknowing student to a student who's at some point taken special lessons or their mother and fathers were artists. So you have one person who can do absolutely nothing in the same class with someone who is, is fairly well versed in what to do. I'm not addressing your question at all, am I? I don't know. <laughs>
4: Well, I heard a guy say uh, recently, he was on the radio, that he'd been coming across the United States and uh, stopping off in, uh, in schools and uh, running a little test whereby he would ask, in like the first five grades, kindergarten through the fifth, how many people in here are artists? And he said, uh, up to about the fifth grade, every hand would go up. And he said, in about the sixth grade, two tentative hands start to... So educational systems pretty much wipes out the artist and everybody in the first four or five years. And uh, we end up where we are now with a crisis of imagination. People are unable to imagine uh, the world differently than, as somebody said, if we don't change our ways, we're going to get to where we're headed. (laughs) And you can't do it if you don't have any imagination, if you've wiped the creativity out of people in the first few years of uh, their existence in your educational system. So, in our fault. I have a question about um, place. I grant the point that uh, using the label California artist is not a very useful or smart label, but Was there something special about Davis, about the Central Valley, that uh, contributed to what went on in this department and what still goes on?
3: I saw the situation we had here at Davis as really a great one, the isolation we had here. Um, There really wasn't much happening, you know, in New York. I mean there were new names coming up certainly, great names Uh, but it all was just starting to happen that whole new thing Uh, San Francisco was just also beginning to grow Uh, so it was wide open here to the possibilities of what could take place which gave us a chance to really work um, in a fantastic banner here, I think. Um, it, uh, I found it really exciting.
0: Um, there's been a lot of talk about um, your influence on students and the art department and everything. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about um, how being a teacher and having students has affected you as artists or on your art or just influenced you or just some words about just kind of the other way around the other side of it
3: I don't know how you two feel about it but <clears throat> being in the class uh, for me it always it was a two way street and uh, it was give and take um, no question about it um, We, the artist is, is uh, a person of, of his of the, you know the situation around him and it's affected by those around him and uh, we had some great people to be touched by here I was very lucky in that way
2: yeah some of the students are much more well known than any of us and I think that's terrific and you know I just I steal also from students <laughs> That sounds, I know it sounds funny, but it really isn't. If you think about it, if you say you're teaching a color class and you set a problem, you have in the classroom then 25 or 30 students working on a singular problem, at least the way in which I go about it. So it's a sort of laboratory that serializes a particular problem in such a way that I see possibilities for, for myself and hopefully the students have the same option. I remember, I, I feel very much that we were always close to the students. We went <clears throat> often to the same parties, uh, We went to the same openings together, often uh, as a group, the students and the faculty. Uh, Maybe that's another thing that helped us uh, be a decent department, I don't know, but it certainly was, in my experience, uh, a closeness which which was very, very uh, fulfilling.
0: I'd like to comment a little uh, from a point of view of a town person, although I was a student here starting in 1958. um, I raised my family here, and I worked on campus at the lab school, so we'd bring our children. And, And I'd like to suggest that your influence was way beyond the art department and the community itself has truly benefited from all of your work. You've kind of talked about um, the last couple of questions and then Annabelle's about something I'm not sure I can articulate exactly but even, it has something to do with teaching and career, and um, like where you were in your career when you kind of came to the university, how the university, um, you know, was a useful resource in all ways—students and ideas, kind of a think tank—and then the practicality of everyone needing a job to work. And I'm not sure it's possible to anticipate a life without, like if you had a choice, Uh, if you had a different kind of life, a different kind of resource, where teaching wasn't a necessity. Um, Have you thought about that? Like, um, if it was a choice, and what it would be different, and the nature of... I guess what I'm asking is something about the nature of balancing your work and your career and being a kind of institutionalized lifestyle and a kind of, I always think that, um, I'm going on and on, but there's kind of an antithesis between academics and art. In some ways there's some sympathy, but in a lot of ways, like art is so unacademic. And I just wonder about that as artists. Am, Am I making any sense This is how I talk to my students too.
3: Well, I don't know, as far as I'm concerned, my career was just crazy. And uh, as I've said before, uh, you know, when I was first started as an artist, you know, going to art school, and later on, uh, nobody was selling much. Those days, it, it wasn't a matter of you know, art as a commodity to to live by. You know. um, I was going to be an electrical engineer in Berkeley where I first started, and uh, made the mistake of taking one of those easy art classes at uh, Sid, City College where <clears throat> I had to go uh, 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 during the summertime. To, to get a lab class that I needed, you know, at Berkeley uh, and uh, ran into this guy by the name of Roy Walker. And I was was going to take a drawing class and I walked into the wrong class and it was ceramics class. Roy was teaching there. And he was just a wonderful man. Not that he taught me how to be an artist or was a great art teacher. But the information he gave me about what the art world was about at that time was just extraordinary. Uh, we had some great teachers around, some great artists around in the San Francisco area. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I didn't know anybody or what was happening. And he said, uh, well, there's a guy by the name of Clifford Still. He's having a show at, uh, at the museum in San Francisco. Go see the show and then go talk, I was teaching over at uh, Berkeley. Uh, not, not at Berkeley, at the Art Institute. And uh, so I did. And he started telling me about these men who were teaching around it. What I would do was just go over and say, can I sit in your class and listen to what you have to say? And in those days, everybody was wide open and they let me sit in. And it was a great introduction. Uh, there were just some great people around. There were all these great names from, you know, in those early 50s from uh, from New York who were here teaching these summer classes because they, they weren't making much money in New York in, the, in that time. Um, and so I went into the art world and I didn't really, I never thought of it as a, a career where I would be teaching, because there weren't any teaching jobs out there beyond high school. And so I, I just decided to study with people that were really interesting to me that I felt I had some rapport with, and uh, it was a great way for me to, <clears throat> to uh, get into art school and use the art school in that manner. So I think all of us have had you know wayne mentioned a little bit earlier about sort of his break into into the art world uh, we all had a little different approach you know each one of us had a different approach into, into this whole thing that that we have here
4: um I'm. I'm curious. Uh, we're we're putting you, in this awkward position that obviously, Bill is really
3: uncomfortable <laughs> with
4: a kind of Mount Rushmore up here, <laughs> and uh, so I, I'd just like to, bring it up to date and hear what gets your juices going today. What are you working on, Bill? I know you're really impassioned about the war, and that's very present in your most recent work. I'd love to hear what uh, all three of you are thinking about art these days. Torture. (laughs) Is it a good thing? Should we be doing it? Let's debate over whether it's something we should be doing or not. Hard to keep that out of my mind and out of the work. uh, Also, I'm doing pinball machines. And actually, I got up here late, um, which I was wrong on the time for Roy, and I had written out a thing I was going to read on Roy. And I think I'll just do that now, because uh, that's what I want to do. I first saw Roy's work at the Delexi Gallery in the late 50s or early 60s. I liked his work and felt a kinship. Later in the early 60s, I got to know Roy when... We talked together at Davis, roughly 62 to 72. Roy, an absolutely unique individual, highly intelligent, a keen eye as well as wit, a great teacher, artist, philosopher. There's a lot of accessible imagery and energy in Roy's work. Very available to the small as well as the tall. Good father, husband, teacher, artist, friend who will be greatly missed and remembered I would like to add that Roy doggedly pursued his visions (laughs) never sent a cocker spaniel to do the work if a terrier was called for and near as I can tell never barked up the wrong tree as said we'll miss you Roy and are glad you were here We send you lots of love and good wishes to you wherever you are. And I was thinking earlier, talking about graduate students and uh, going to the graduate uh, reviews, and um, Roy laid a phrase on me. First time I'd ever heard it, we were looking at somebody's work, and I was having a hard time expressing to the student that I wasn't completely convinced by his work, and Roy gave me the phrase, uh, fails to suspend your disbelief. <laughs> it's a nice way of putting a hammer on somebody. <laughs> and then I was going to end up uh, my talk on Roy uh, with uh, a couple of poems by a poet that I worked with. That I, I don't know. They I, I just seemed apt somehow. First poem's called Distraction. Why not kill everything, Lord Shiva wonders? And makes a start, but gets distracted by a pair of Orioles, male and female, singing in the banana tree. Gnosis, or Gnosis. I stoop to pick up what might be a lucky penny. Why snicker? You don't know how the universe works, and neither do I. Dark wings, bright wings.
0: You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.